a delight to be with you today. It's always a delight to be with you. I uh, should let you know I flew in late last night from Denver after spending a week in the custody of four little kids under the age of five <laughs> who were horrified if I ever sat down. And so I said that because there's a certain sense in which I should not be held responsible for what I say this morning. I hope you have your Bibles open to that passage. We're going to focus our attention uh, most intently on verses 1 through 4. I, I, st- I, stand, I stand before you today as more of as, as an exhorter. You, you've got some phenomenal theologians in your congregation here. I come as a pastor after 50 years of pastoral ministry, deeply burdened about the state of evangelical Christianity here in America. And what I'm hoping to do this morning is to exhort you to some serious reflection and maybe some determined change in how you live your lives. Jesus one time exhorted his followers to lift their eyes unto the fields, for they are white unto harvest, and they still are. But our eyes tend to be fixed on the ground, where we're going, what we're doing, and all the stresses of life, and and that's normal. But we're not normal. We have a higher calling, bigger fish to fry. We have more important aspirations in life. The Apostle Paul felt that acutely, and he wanted the Colossian believers to live the same way. Now, here's the thing about the pagan religions in Paul's day. They were all about convenience, because a man could bring his little offering and bow before his little idol and then go back to living the way he always had with his conscience eased. There's there no pressure to be honest or to be hardworking or to be moral. There's no correlation between behavior and belief. That was the case in the ancient world. And then along came Christianity, and it was a whole new ballgame. Faith in Christ meant Christ was now dwelling within a person, and one began living Christ's life and through the power of Christ's Spirit, and it was impossible to live the same life that one had lived before. And I think the Apostle Paul is trying to remind the Colossians of that. The main idea in these verses is, look, you are now in Christ, so stop raking around in the muck and start gazing into the heavens. As I look at these four verses, you'll notice two parallel imperatives. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on things that are above. Those are semantically equivalent statements. They, they say the same thing in basically different, in, in, in slightly different ways. That, that's the exhortation. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. But then he also gives five reasons for thinking about things above. He says, because you've been raised with Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you're alive in Christ. Number two, he says, because Christ is seated at the right hand of God, as Brother Ardell just mentioned. We are seated there with him. He is our advocate. Number three, because you've died with Christ. You're, You're dead to sin. Number four, because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And the world and Satan himself cannot understand you or control you. And then number five, because you will appear with Christ in glory. This world is not my home, just passing through. So here's how I want to approach this passage. I want to walk through those five reasons, because they're huge, and the cumulative effect of them should be deeply motivating to us. Then secondly, I want to discuss these things above. What what are they? Exactly what are they? And then I want to talk about what it means to set your affections on things above which is important to me because you, me, all of us struggle mightily with that. And then I want to talk about why it's so hard to do that. 
it seems kind of mystical, and meditation really isn't our strong suit because we've got jobs and houses and kids and neighbors whose dogs are digging holes in our yards and mother-in-laws who hate us and financial stress and health issues and pastors who are hounding us to be more involved in church and before you know it, another year has come and gone. And it's hard to focus on things above when the toilet keeps plugging up. And then last, I want to give you some ideas about how to get there. How do I go about seeking things that are above without entering a monastery or a convent? So here are those five reasons why our minds should be focused on heaven. Number one, because you've been raised with Christ. William Barclay said it as well as anybody. He said, the point Paul is making is this. In baptism, the Christian dies and rises again. As the waters close over him, it is as if he was buried in death. And as he emerges from the waters, it's like being resurrected into a new life. Now, if that is so, the Christian cannot arise from baptism the same man he went down into baptism. There must be a difference. And wherein is the difference? The difference lies in the fact that he can no longer be overly burdened with the trivial things of this life. The first step of obedience for a Christian is what? It's baptism, which is a public way of identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. And as Barclay said it, we demonstrate that we're alive in Christ, that we're one with Jesus Christ, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit of Christ, and we have the mind of Christ. We're a new creation. I love the way Paul put it in Romans 6. He said, do you not know that all of us have been buried with Christ Jesus, were buried, baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So obviously what we're talking about here is a new set of values, and we're going to care about things a lot differently than we used to. I like to think of Zacchaeus, the crooked tax collector, who as soon as he accepted Christ, he immediately wanted to make amends. He promised to restore fourfold to all those that he had scammed in the course of his duty. Now that's evidence right there of being with Christ. He was already thinking thoughts on a higher plane. I'm always thrilled when people look up from praying the sinner's prayer of repentance and faith, and immediately they say something like, oh man, I've got some old debts to pay, or I need to ask forgiveness, or I need to get a different job, or I need to break this habit. You see, th those are evidence of change. That's thinking like Christ. I used to ask people, when did you become a Christian? I don't do that. Now I say, tell me about the time that Christ distinctly changed your life. Because when your eyes are lifted off your feet to the reality of eternity in the presence of God, you've got your mind where it's supposed to be. And then number two, Paul said, because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We need to think on a higher plane. We need to focus on things above because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power, and then he says this, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Peter says, he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so put that image in your mind. Jesus Christ seated at the right hand 
of God the Father. You remember in Luke chapter 22 how the Lord for the third time, or after, after Peter denied the Lord for the third time, Jesus, who was in the process of being beaten and tortured, turned and looked at him. You know what that did to Peter? Broke him. He rushed out of the courtyard and he wept bitterly. The Greek implies that he sobbed. In my mind, Jesus, having completed the work of atoning for my sin, paid my penalty, endured my agony, took my reproach, suffered my humiliation, died my death. After that, he's now seated at the right hand of God, and he sits on his throne, and he turns and looks at me. And it's a look that says, I died to free you from the penalty and the power of sin. Now live accordingly. Now, Paul reminds us that Christ conquered sin. He overcame evil so that we could live victoriously. It's all been done. His efforts were successful so that all remains for us is to go forth in that confidence. So when you live a life that is only faintly different from the world, in your mind, you should see Christ with a crown of thorns on his head, blood running down his face, looking at you with a bit of disappointment because your eyes... They're still on the ground instead of where they need to be. And then number three, he says, because you have died with Christ. When Christ died on the cross as our substitute, we died with him. And the power of sin is now broken, and it is now possible not to sin. Now, before Christ, it was impossible not to sin. But now in Christ, it is possible for us not to sin. We have the, the power and the motivation not to. Romans 6.2, Paul says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? In Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So listen, we're, we're no longer helpless slaves to sin. We no longer have to get up in the morning and put on our armband identifying ourselves as slaves and go about doing slave stuff. We've been set free. In the story of Esther, an edict was signed that on March 7th, all the citizens of the kingdom were given permission to kill all the Jews and seize all their stuff. The Jews were helpless. But as you know the story, the king gave a second decree authoring the Jews to defend themselves and to seize the property of those who were attacking them. In other words, they were no longer helpless against the attacks. They had the power to resist. In Christ, we have the power to resist, to rise above the bondage of sin, and to break free. We died with Christ to the old ways, to life-dominating sins. We're not helpless. We can overcome. It is our nature to overcome. The Apostle John says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Instead, we will like the Apostle Paul declared, magnify Christ in our bodies. And like Jesus explained, you're the light of the world. And then number four, he says, because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And, and there's two things implied here. One is the children of God are untouchable. Remember, in Romans 8, Paul lays out this in five great rhetorical questions. He says, if God's for us, who can be against us? I mean, that means we're invincible. And number two, he says, since he willingly gave us his son, will he not also give us everything else we need? If he, if he met our greatest need, which is our soul, isn't he going to take care of all the other piddly little needs of life? And number three, he says, Who's gonna who dares to accuse us? Because Christ is our advocate, our lawyer. 
Number four, who can condemn us? Because the judge is our father. And then finally it says, can anything ever separate us from the love of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is absolutely no. Now, when I was a kid, I had a paper out. And there was this little demon-possessed boy who used to throw acorns at me from behind the fence. And one day he upgraded to a slingshot, which hurt pretty bad. So I jumped off my bike, went over the fence, chased after him, and he was screaming his head off. And I was gaining as we came around the corner of his house. Now, do you remember Bill Cosby's routine about Fat Albert? Well, this kid had a sister who was Fat Albert's twin. She was as big as a Mack truck and just as ugly. And the little brat with the slingshot was hiding behind her, and she was in the process of hoisting herself to her feet. She had biceps the size of truck tires. And I was in fifth grade. What does a fifth grader do against a Mack truck? Nothing. You slink away defeated. Now, that's the way I think of it. I am hiding behind a divine Mack truck. Attack me, mock me, accuse me, blackmail me. Put up with this. Whatever. The judge of the universe is in my corner, which makes me invincible, untouchable. I look to the heavens as my defense. But the other thing here is this life is hidden in the sense that the world doesn't get it. It's, it's the kind of life they can't relate to. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But we do have that discernment. You ever hear about procession caterpillars? I saw them one time where a guy had a, uh, what they call a procession caterpillar. He put this caterpillar down, they put another one behind it, another one behind that, and he lined up like six or seven of them, and, and they just were following each other, just nose to tail, just following each other, and he put, he put them on the rim of a, of a mason jar, and these caterpillars just marched around the rim over and over, and he says they'll keep doing that until they die and fall off. The unbelieving that we are tempted to conform to are exactly like that. They're going round and round in a circle thinking this is all there is. He who dies with the most toys wins. So they pursue big houses and fancy cars and designer clothes and club membership and boats and all that kind of stuff thinking that's what life is all about and they can't imagine anything else. So they live and they die in that miserable cycle going round and round like caterpillars never achieving peace and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. We are destined for the skies like butterflies. This world is not our home, and we must never, even for an hour, forget this. And then finally, the fifth one is, since you eventually will appear with Christ in glory. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us we've already been glorified. I love that. Romans 8, 30, he says, For those who have been predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in literature, that's, uh, that's speaking proleptically. See, speaking of something in the future that hasn't yet happened yet, but he's speaking as if it has. Now, when I became a Christian, I was saved and glorified. It's just that the glory hasn't been revealed yet. That day is still coming. And when it does, we believers are going to be transformed into something new that is, we'll take on the glory that the Apostle Paul referred to. That's what the Bible says in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that, in, that enables him to subject all things to himself. 
And John says it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. So now to the the Apostle Paul, these are five really good reasons to be obsessed with the future rather than the present world. We've been given every reason to be thrilled about what's coming, what's up ahead. We ought to be like the slaves in the South during the Civil War who talked all day, every day about nothing except what life is going to be like when we're finally free. The fact is, this world is not our home. This is not what we were destined for. We were destined for eternity and glory, not earth. And I think what the Apostle Paul was trying to do here is inspire us. Now, in the opening of his book, Don Whitney wrote a book about spiritual disciplines. And he started with this little fantasy tale. He says, imagine a 10-year-old boy sitting in the living room picking away on his guitar while his friends are across the street playing soccer. His parents signed him up for guitar lessons and he couldn't care less. One afternoon, an angel visited him in the living room and transported him to Carnegie Hall. And so he watches from the wings while the guitar virtuoso does things to a guitar he never dreamed possible. The fingers dance on the strings, and what pours forth is music sweeter than anything he'd heard in his life. And the music soars and pirouettes through the packed hall, and the boy smiles through his tears when the concert is ended, and he asks the the angel, Who was that man? The angel smiles back, and they're suddenly back in the living room. And the angel says, that was you, my son, in a few short years. But you have to practice. And then he's gone. Now, can you imagine the difference in that boy's approach to his guitar lessons and his his practice time? After that kind of a vision? And as long as he keeps that vision of that concert in mind, he's going to remain powerfully motivated. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to do for us in these verses. Motivate us to focus on the glorious future rather than the humdrum here and now. So that brings us to the question, so so what are these things we're supposed to set our minds on? Well, it's certainly not the geography of heaven, the Although Revelation 22 is pretty exciting with streets of gold and, and pearly gates and rivers of living water and a city of amazing di- dimensions and all that. But, but more to the point, it's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's his world. We're brothers and sisters, and we're inheritors of that world. That's our ultimate destination, our final home, and he rules it. It's a place where love and forgiveness and grace and mercy reign. It's a place where there's, there's no jockeying for position, no dangerous ambition, no power struggles, no lusting after gold and silver. There's peace and justice and light and compassion. There's joy and pleasure and delight. There's music and wisdom and knowledge. It's the kingdom of Christ, and that's where our citizenship is. And when things get stressful and discouraging and painful down here, we're not depressed because... We know what's coming up next. I don't know about you, but I've been through major surgery more times than I care to count. And I think of this kind of like surgery because in surgery, somebody is going to deliberately inflict great bodily harm on you. Deliberately. But you're okay with it because you're looking beyond the enduring pain. You're looking beyond to what it's going to be like after you heal. What does it mean to set your mind on things above? 
Well, I think it takes dogged persistence, determined perseverance, like Howard Carter, the archaeologist who spent decades of his life sifting through the rubble, digging tunnels in sand, wandering the baking deserts of Egypt, looking for the tomb of Tutankhamun. And despite years of failure, loss of support, growing concern about his mental well-being, he persisted until at last he found it. What did he live for? The tomb of King Tut. Now, he had all the same responsibilities everybody else did. He had daily demands, and yet in the back of his mind, continually, part of his mind was devoted to the tomb of King Tut. What do you live for? I watch kids light up when you mention pizza. Some people light up when you mention NASCARs. For some people, music is their life. Some people live for sports or money or fashion. You know what made the Apostle Paul light up? For me to live is Christ. That's what got him up in the morning. How can I magnify Christ today? So then the question ought to be asked, why is it so hard to keep our minds set on things above? And we're not the only ones. You remember Martha, she had a pretty tough time. She got caught in the kitchen worrying about feeding her guests and that overrode her affection for things above that day. Judas certainly never got it. His love for money overpowered any affection for things above. The rich young ruler couldn't see past his financial holdings. See, the problem is the, is the terrible duality that we have to live with. We're, we're, we're in the world, but we're not supposed to be part of it. So you think of the, Hebrew, the, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham believed God's promise that his children would inherit the land. He looked forward to a city designed and built by God. And here's what the Holy Spirit said about him and his compatriots. They all died in faith, not having received the things that they promised, but having seen them in their minds and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles here on earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking about that land from which they'd gone out, they could have returned. But as it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Now listen to this. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared for them that city. You know, and for us, you know, we, we're, we're more like Lot's wife who couldn't help but turn back and gaze with longing and despair over the destruction of her home in the city of Sodom. Or, or, or the, the one I read about several years ago about this uh, well-to-do family who had a very expensive uh, vase that was worth all kinds of money, and uh, their granddaughter got her hand stuck in it. And they tried, they put lotion on there and mineral uh, oil and all kinds of things, and they twisted and they did everything. And they could not get her hand out of it. So finally, reluctantly, they had to break the vase, the expensive vase, and discovered that she had put her hands in there and found a nickel. And she made a fist and she would not let go of that nickel. <laughs> and so the vase was lost for a nickel. We get so caught up with the petty affairs of this life that we lose perspective. You know, all the time I was growing up in church, we used to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the chorus goes this way, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That never happened to me. That part about the things growing strangely dim, and it hasn't happened to too many of us either. 
I, I hear as a, as a pastoral counselor, I hear people say, my husband died and it was as if I died with him. I, I, can't, I can't imagine life without him. Or I've lost my job and all those years of effort are down the drain. I feel dead inside. Or as the years passed, I lived with the hope that I would eventually get married and have children. I've given up hope. What, what is there to live for? Or I've gone to church all my life, tried to be a good person, and now I've lost all my retirement funds. What good did it do me? You see, those are people who never got their noses out of the world. They never caught a glimpse of the life that's beyond this. They're so locked into this world that nothing exists beyond it. And we frown and criticize them in church, but then out on Monday, we're thinking the same way. And here's the resolution of this terrible duality. Yes, we're in the world, but we don't belong. We're made for something more, something far better. This is only a necessary interlude. The entire 70, or if the psalmist says, or if by reason of strength, 80 years we live in this life, that is only boot camp. This is temporary housing. Peter tells us we're, we're peculiar people. We're strangers. We're pilgrims, meaning we don't fit in here. Paul tells us we're ambassadors, and our citizenship is on the other side. We represent that kingdom. We're here on assignment, subject to recall. Why would we put down our roots in the host country? Think, think of it this way. You're given a tumble-down, abandoned place of property, piece of property to occupy while a fabulous home is being built for you on the other side of the river in a beautiful city. Eventually, a ferry is going to come pick you up and take you across to the other side where you get to live in your incredible new home. But meanwhile, you're stuck in this tumble-down property, and so, after all, you don't know how long you're going to be here, so you fix it up a little bit, and you repair the roof. In fact, you put a new roof on, do a little painting. The carpet's rotten, so you replace that, too. Windows are warped and drafty. You need new windows. Put a fence around the yard and maybe a little jungle gym for the kids. Eventually, you finish off the attic in the basement. For the kids, you know, for ministry. And you try to entertain people from church, and you use the place for Christian hospitality. At some point, you added a pool and a gazebo out in the garden and air conditioning and some furniture upgrades, you know, help the place. So finally, it's pretty livable. And then the ferry arrives to take you across the river to your new place. But you put all this effort all this money, all this time into this place, and it, you know, it's, it's become home. A lot, a lot of memories here. I've raised the kids here, and, and I've invested a great deal. I just can't walk away from it. And the fact of the matter is, you're not ready to leave. You don't want to leave yet. In fact, you actually fight to stay a little longer. What in the world happened? Well, you, you didn't set your affections on what's happening across the river. You set them on the things here which is why you're in no hurry to get to heaven, because this is all you know. This is not what you, you, you've invested here rather than like Jesus said, sending it on ahead. In, Rome, in Matthew 6, he said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through and steal, for where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. You, know, you, you can think about things above on, in church on Sunday, but once you get out the doors and get back in the real world, there's no time to daydream about heaven. And so you go back to living in the real world with all its duties and demands and responsibilities and pressures and stresses. 
So that brings us to this last question. How can I make things above the default setting of my mind? Number one, get a solid grasp on the fact that you're already delivered from bondage to this world. In Galatians 1.4, Paul says, who gave himself for us that he might deliver us from this present world. A woman once asked her pastor, or told her pastor, she said, I had a vivid dream the other night where an angel from God told me that the world is going to come to an end very, very soon. And he said, well, that's fine by me because I can do without it. And that's exactly right. It is no disaster to lose what is only temporary in the first place. One of the reasons why God allows us to suffer, to experience suffering and cancer and different things, I think, is to loosen our grip on life. How many times have I heard believers, saints of God, who are laying in bed suffering and saying, why am I still here? Why doesn't the Lord take me home? In the last moments of my wife's life, I sat by her and took her hand. She had been in a coma for three days. I took her hand and I, I began to tell her what a good wife she'd been and a good, good mom and what I appreciate about her. And, and then I said, you know, honey, there's nothing left for you here. It's time to let go. It's time to go home and be with Jesus. And then I prayed and I asked the Lord to take her. And when I got done, she took one breath. And she was gone. There's nothing here to hold her. Of course she had two sons and she had just had a couple of grandbabies and she loved grandbabies and, and there were those things, but all that pales into insignificance compared to what's on the other side. When people say, I can't wait to get to heaven to see my mom or my grandma or, or my brother or so and so, they've got the wrong perspective. If you're a Christian, the one thing you want to see on the other side is Jesus Christ himself. You know, during COVID, we saw some amazing things. People that we thought were saints of God who were scared to death they were going to die of COVID. It's like, if I'm not careful, I'm going to die, and I'm going to get stuck having to go to heaven, I guess. <laughs> who thinks that way? Listen, this world is not our home in the first place. Number two is fill your mind with truth about Christ. Read about Christ. Meditate upon Christ. Worship Christ. The more time you spend with Christ, the more passionate you're going to become about Christ. Back in my youth pastor days, I organized youth trips and camps and retreats and conclaves and all kinds of events and activities, and always my mind is swimming with details and always rehearsing what's going to happen next. And one, one night, soon after we were married... I was in Pennsylvania with 50 kids on an Easter trip, and we're going to New York City. And I had everybody settle down in a church and basement in Somerset, Pennsylvania. And as I laid down, normally I would mentally review the itinerary for the next day and make sure I had everything covered. And to my surprise, I was thinking about Ev. And, and I noticed that whenever I had downtime now, I was, I was thinking about Ev. I dated her, I learned how to love her, I'd married her so I could live with her, and now she'd become the default setting of my mind. I, I took care of business, I enjoyed what I was doing, I participated in life, but when I had time to think, my mind drifted off to Ev. And the Apostle Paul thinks our minds ought to drift off to Christ and things above. And then number three, recommend Christ. Because the more you, you promote Christ, the more you defend Christ, the more you love him. 
I went to a public high school back in the 60s, and uh, we were in an era of free love, free sex, abortion, all that kind of stuff. And in that secular school, um, I, had to, uh, I had to defend my faith. I couldn't just say, well, that stuff's against my religion. I had to de defend the faith. And so I spent time with my youth pastor, and I'm studying the Bible, memorizing verses. And so as I talked about Christ and as I defended Christ, the truth became ever more precious to me. Recommend him. Your passion is what you talk about the most, what you day daydream about, where your mind drifts in idle moments. That being the case, a lot of us have to admit that contrary to the song we used to sing, this world really is my home. And we have to constantly work on changing that. You know that song? Sing it with me if you do. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Man, I hope with all my heart that that's exactly how you feel and live. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to be together this morning and to look at the words of your servant, Paul. Weighty words, words that we need to ponder, meditate upon, and put into practice. I pray, Lord, that we would not lightly forget these things, but that as we leave this place, we will give time to reflect on our own lives and make the changes necessary, change our, our ways so that, in fact, our minds are focused where you want them to be, on things above. And I pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.